so this movie is really, really, really good. And I have a funny story about it was when, I mean, you probably already know this, Andy, when Marsh and I went to go see it at the music box. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Carnahan. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so see, that's, that's what I was movie. confused about, though. That's what I was confused about, though, because I was like, that's Better Tomorrow 3. And then it was like, wait, no, it's not a Better Tomorrow 3. It was supposed to be a Better Tomorrow 3 or whatever. This right? is madness. Like, We've got two Tony Lungs. We've got two Better Tomorrow 3s. We're, we're all so lost. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm very lost. You know? The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you. It's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and I'm joined here with Eric Marsh. And Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us picks a topic for the week. And the other two hosts are then challenged with bringing films to the table that address the topic, meet the topic, uh, maybe uh, uh, go up against it a little bit. You know, it's all fun here. We have a lot of fun. So this week it was my turn to pick the topic. And sometimes, you know, I like to to look at what's going on in the world for inspiration in, in my choices. And you know, I just feel like everybody looking around in the news today, uh, you know, they just, they look at their politicians of all kinds and, and just wonder who the hell are these people and what the fuck are they doing and, and how did we get here in this mess? You know, y- you feel like you might have a lot of misrepresentation. Uh, and so I, I asked the boys to, to, to dive into that, you know, to bring me films featuring uh, elected officials who, for one reason or another, might be letting their constituency down or, or you know, leading their, their, their nations, their cities, their states down a questionable path. And boy, uh, I did not expect either of the films that were chosen this week. Uh, on the one hand, because it's a film I've never heard of. And the other hand, because it's a movie I love and just hadn't necessarily thought of it in this way. But revisiting it, watching it, man, it was perfect. Both these films are perfect, in my view, for the topic this week. So we should just get right into it and bring the films out. So Ryan, why don't we start with you? Why don't you tell us about the film you chose? Absolutely. So whenever I think about misrepresentation or filmmakers getting really angry at political leaders, one of the first names that comes to my mind is Glauber Rocha, 
the Brazilian filmmaker. And boy, oh boy, does Glauber Rocha have quite a lot to say about those who were elected and the way that they are running uh, the country of Brazil. Uh, he has a lot of fiery sentiments that he is not afraid to share, um, even if sometimes the way he shares them makes uh, like a medium smart guy like me very confused. But I was excited to give it a sh- another shot and dive back into the work of Glauber Rocha with his film Entranced Earth from 1967. Entranced Earth at its core is about a journalist slash poet named Paolo Martins, who tells his story through flashbacks of sorts, where he's reflecting on his past and the way that he used to support a conservative leader, this like isolated, frightening man who wants to lead Brazil but has lost all touch with the populace. And instead, he diverts his attention to a populist leader um, and decides to support that person. But then throughout his own relationship to the bourgeoisie, his own conflicted opinions about poetry, and also his sort of conflicted feelings of love to both a communist and someone who is directly in line with the uh, conservative leader, all lead to a hurricane of emotions and confusion and chaos, um, politically, emotionally, and spiritually. And that feeling comes across in the way that Glauber Rocha made this film. It is a part of a Brazilian cinema movement called Cinema Novo, which, with my limited exposure to it, primarily through him and his writings, there's sort of a visual style to them, right? They are really, like, rough, black-and-white films, completely blown-out skies, using real locations and real people, along with then, like, some established Brazilian um, icons and stars of the time. And they're aggressive films, particularly Roche's films. He is is quoted as saying that he wanted this film to feel like vomit. And it is a film that his political sentiments come through across mainly in the way it looks. It's a hard film to look at sometimes. It's an ugly film. It's a... But it can be a beautiful film. It's just a lot. And I'm sort of trying to figure out how to cap this off. I guess I'll say there's a lot to chew over, and I was very overwhelmed by the end of it, but I did feel as though I came out um, uh, feeling a little more... (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, actually. Uh Yeah. Uh I was uh, I was glad to have been along for the ride, and um, I'm excited to hear what both of you took from it. But it is a, definitely a film that is not satisfied with those who have been elected in this fictitious country of El Dorado. Uh, so yeah, that's Entranced Earth from 1967. Thank you, Ryan. Now, Marsh, please tell us what you brought to the table as well. You know, I had the perfect film all picked out. I was thinking all week, I got this in the bag, The Great McGinty by Preston Sturgis. And then I thought, well, we just did Stage Door. Can we really bear another classic Hollywood masterpiece? So I decided to switch it up a little bit, you know? And for some reason, uh, my mind went to, well, not for some reason, I would say, I guess, (laughs) directly inspired by recent uh, events, right? My mind went to uh, 
what I've always thought of as one of the worst presidents we've ever had in cinema. And that is Cliff Robertson in John Carpenter's 1996 film, Escape from L.A. The sequel, of course, to Carpenter's Escape from New York, once again teaming up with his best bud, Kurt Russell, to bring the great anti-hero Snake Plissken back into the cinemas in the middle 90s. And uh, this film uh, essentially is, uh, you know, uh, kind of a beat-by-beat remake of the original, but with a totally different flavor. And that's the flavor of Los Angeles, right? So instead of, you know, the gritty New York stuff and like sewer dwellers and gangs, we have uh, lots of jokes about Hollywood and uh, all the iconography that goes with it. And essentially, getting to the topic of misrepresentation, the setup of the movie is really where that lies, right? Obviously, the the political aspect is, I guess you could say, maybe in the background, but it manifests, you know, throughout Snake's journey. So, in the year 2000, massive earthquakes strike Los Angeles, inspired, of course, by the real-life earthquakes of the early 90s. And after this happens, a uh, theocratic candidate for president of the United States uh, is elected because he called it. LA is a den of sin, you know, they're gonna get blown off the earth. And uh, when that comes to fruition, he is elected president of the United States for life. And he moves the capital to his hometown of Lynchburg, Virginia, while they turn Los Angeles into a concentration camp and deportation zone. And basically they send anyone there who doesn't fit the new moral America, right? This very, uh, again, you know, like our recent film, Pit in the Pendulum, you know, a filmmaker kind of addressing the rise of the evangelical right, you know, in the 80s and 90s, just like Stuart Gordon did. Carpenter very much addressing that directly here, you know, calling out the the Falwells and the Robertsons of the world with this presidential character. And uh, yeah, so the movie obviously is uh, Snake uh, has been arrested and brought into custody by the US government. And uh, he is tasked with bringing back the president's daughter, Utopia, who has stolen a piece of very valuable technology that the military has developed and she smuggles it into LA because she's fallen in love with the rebel leader Cuervo Jones, who is planning a third world invasion of the United States uh, from Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, so Snake sent in there to retrieve that and then uh, we'll get into the rest, you know, this, uh, this Hollywood <laughs> journey that Snake Plissken goes on. Well, thank you, boys. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I think most great political films are satires. And I think that there's a lot of different approaches to satire. And, and having these two films together uh, is a great example of how filmmakers can take such different approaches 
to that, to political satire. Uh, in the case of the entranced earth, we have an almost mythopoetic approach to political satire because the film, you know, though it, it's, it's serious and it's angry, uh, there's also a lot of humor in it, you know, a very yes. sort of dark humor, a very cynical humor. But, but I found at times, you know, there was, there was a lot of, of comedic touches in the film that, struck me. And, and, you know, on the other hand, we have Escape from LA, which is, you know, in Carpenter's own words, his, his attempt at satire, his approach to satire. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's, it's really wonderful to see, you know, these two films brought together, uh, for us to, to, to dive into this topic. They, they couldn't be farther apart in their their formal approaches uh, to the subject matter, <laughs> and yet, at their heart, they are both films made by people who look at the world, past, present, and future, uh, and and have a lot to be concerned about. Indeed, they are. Yes, and I, you know, I think you know it's a good point you mentioning that there is some purposeful comedy and some light touches throughout Entranced Earth. And at the same time, maybe they're just my contemporary eyes encountering something as so serious as Entranced Earth, but also maybe this is baked into it. It's also a little bit silly, I think, at times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a lot of that comes through, though, also with his just disgust of some of the people he's depicting in the film, to the point where even if he's showing these lavish parties and the, you know, quote-unquote charms of the bourgeoisie, uh, their behavior is quite silly. And the way that they treat some of these crises as these poetic callings um, that they're, you know, striving after even he finds i think a lot of that behavior a bit silly even if it seems like it's aligning with certain leftist politics so i think both films share that a little bit too i was really thinking that like the bourgeoisie like party club that's represented in entranced the earth orgy. yeah the jazz <laughs> orgy dude i was watching it and i was like this is like fucking jack smith's flaming creatures this is like the straight version of of flaming creatures the mm. way it's shot <laughs> and the way it is silly and the way it's like fun and disgusting you mm -hmm. know like I was really feeling that there is that throughout the film and I think Ryan you've hit on maybe you know one of the essential things is like I don't think as the director he really uh, identifies with any of the characters so I think he's really like making fun of them so much of the time, you know. Everybody and gets not, skewered, and not yeah, and not just the conservative politician who rides around in his car with a cross, you know, like a total psycho. But you know, again, the the sort of like populist leftist leader that's depicted is also a buffoon, and you really get that feeling of there being no good solutions or easy solutions or nonviolent solutions, right? And, and I think both films, in their own way, deal with that. You know, when is, when is enough enough, right? Uh, that sort of runs throughout all of them. Yeah, yeah. And that, that definitely, like, that spirit, I think, uh, you know, from, from Entranced Earth to Escape from L.A., like, you, you ultimately see... Boy, by the time you get to Escape from L.A. and you get to the end, you really feel that almost like just sheer nihilism uh, after going through all this of just being like, well, 
fuck it all, right? I mean, like if yeah. there aren't those good solutions and if we've tried all these different avenues and we get let down over and over and over again, like what is going to be the logical or illogical conclusion of all this, you know? I was really struck by that, this go around with Escape from L.A., because it has been many years since I've seen it, and I had always had it filed away as just a Carpenter film I didn't particularly enjoy. And I I knew that that opinion wasn't correct. (laughs) And I I knew one day I would revisit it. And that was one of the reasons I got so excited when you did pick it. I was like, okay, I'm going to have a reckoning with my past self to get over some of the little things that had irked me at the time. And I think maybe though that nihilism and that weight that you feel at the end of Escape from LA was a bit lost on me many years ago when I did encounter it, because to me, it felt like limp or you know i thought it was too silly i thought it looked like shit i thought that by the end like what was this this was just a laugh like why did he make this and now seeing it there's actually something buried beneath all of this farce that does i think hit and i was actually moved by the ending in a way I similar to how I felt at the end of Entranced Earth, after experiencing this carnival of political chaos and feeling like, God damn, I mean, what can I do? What can we do? How do things change? And there is something I think that both of these films share uh, related to that, um, just with radically different approaches. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, it, it is kind of amazing how the film's you know, you can view them as, you know, these films about, you know, the the evolution or de-evolution of uh, quote-unquote Western civilization, you know? Mm. And uh, we get it, and again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but the end of, of Entranced Earth, we have the, the conservative guy into the camera blathering on about civilization and god and country you know this this shit and then right we get to escape from la and right it it reaches beyond its boiling point this anger with quote-unquote civilization Mm -hmm. well correct me if i'm wrong but in the case even of developing escape from la for carpenter because marsh is really you know my resident carpenter expert, Um, (laughs) you know, Carpenter had sort of been, you know, obviously the idea to do a sequel to escape from New York had probably been kicked around for, for many, many years, but it, it was Carpenter saying something along the lines of like, I, I had to, to have a reason to do it. You know, it wasn't the reason to, to just revisit snake Plissken wasn't enough for him, but that he he also wanted to say something more with it. I, I've always felt a very similar kind of soul in, in the world of American cinema. Uh, George Romero, you know, for him being like, well, I'm going to do a zombie movie when there's something I have to say, when there's something I want to explore. And I'm going to use that that world that I've established and the characters and the, you know, the lore or whatever you want to call it uh, to then, you know, address something else, you know, whether it was the rise of consumerism in shopping malls or mm-hmm. George Bush getting elected. Right. And, and in this case for Carpenter, you know, uh, he's got a lot that he actually kind of is throwing out there, you know, and yet it's still, as you almost said, like a beat for beat rehash of escape from New York, but this time around, 
there's just so much more in the characters and the the subplots and 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 everything you know whether it's him making fun of plastic surgery the 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 boom in plastic surgery right or environmental issues you know there's a lot going on here and and it it was just for me like really surprising when i was going through interviews with with carpenter and and the fact that that he really thinks this is a superior film to Escape from New York, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. It's, you know, part of his then long-running sort of, like, Reaganism project, essentially, right? Because, I mean, the way he even tells it is, yeah, he was sort of an apolitical liberal, you know, throughout most of his life. But but after Reagan, you know, he was just mad all the time. And, like, that never stopped. Uh, and he felt totally disconnected, you know, from America or whatever. Uh, and it's, you know, part of his origin story is that he grew up in Kentucky. And, and he talks about this in the uh, Gilles Boulanger interview book where, you know, he witnessed a lot of explicit racism you know, in Kentucky, and uh, he he took that with him the rest of his life, you know, like, he's tone deaf sometimes, but he is, you know, a virulent anti-racist, like, he gets mad, so mad about everything, and, and Reagan for him was a breaking point, right, so they live, you know, obviously, uh, sort of being the, the your text of all that, you know, and I think this is like a, a follow-up, right, and he's reacting to Rodney King, he's reacting to the earthquakes, and, uh, uh, he feels like, yeah, there's a there's a reason to do it beyond money, you know? You know, because he holds it in such high regard and it was like a huge flop. I mean, right? I mean, I, I hate putting it in those terms, right? But it's just like... <laughs> it didn't do great. It did not do well. And, and I, I can't help but, Ryan, after what you said, like going back to that and wondering if if that has something to do with it, you know? That, like, the, the kind of, like, bleakness oh, of yeah. it all, you know? Uh, for 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 what Escape from New York is, you know, it doesn't, it isn't as overtly like political as Escape from LA is. You know, I mean, the president, right. the president, specifically speaking of representation, who he's going to save in Escape from New York. I mean, it's it's Donald Pleasance, yeah. and and he's we want to save that guy. I mean, it's Donald you know, Pleasance, you know? Yeah, you, know? you know, the Duke of New York, a <laughs> number one. Uh, <laughs> It's just a, another opportunity for me to bust out my Donald yeah. Pleasance uh -huh. impersonation. But but seriously, though, in that movie, you know, aside from it just kind of being like, oh, it's, you know, the Cold War and American presidents are jerks or whatever, he he's not nearly as much of a, like, a, a bad presence as Cliff Robertson is immediately in this movie, right? He's just, he's the president. We all know the president sucks in Escape from New York, but this time around... And, and perhaps it's all that you've laid out there, you know, dealing with fucking eight years of Reagan where he's just like, okay, no, nah, the president is horrible. <laughs> like, it's just horrible. Right. There's also an interesting thing going on, I think, with the sort of like image politics aspect of it as well, like being a Hollywood thing, but also 
he's showing you all this mediation in how like the political image is constructed. You know, we see uh, the president, you know, controlling his little command center and like controlling information. And there's like press conferences, but we also see Cuervo Jones like firing off communiques, you know? Mm -hmm. And I do feel like there's like, yeah, that's sort of, again, after Reagan, the actor, Bill Clinton, also an actor, you know, like the Hollywood president or whatever. So I think Carpenter's also kind of, yeah, you know, thinking of that stuff. Uh, and again, I think that ties it to uh, Entranced Earth, which also shows you like the cultivation of an image uh, and what happens, you know, when <laughs> that image is not, you know, uh, come to reality or come, come to fruition, you know, because with Paolo, you know, we see him behind the scenes. Like he ultimately, yeah, he's like, this poet, uh, but he's really like a political operative. Yes. And we see him bouncing around between like different sides, different ideas. Like he is this, this sort of like hollow man, but we see through his hollowness, like how hollow all this, you know, the construction of these images are. Right. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. I actually, so I have a quote from Rosha that I think ties both of these films together quite well and I think it relates a lot to what both of you are talking about this idea of the film Escape from LA being a flop when it came out and the way I think largely in part is because of its comparisons to the original and I think that it's the way it differs from the original in the way that it's skewering all these different things um, can be found in this quote from Glaber Rocha so to this is a him comparing entranced earth to his approach from his previous film he mentions when I made black god white devil I really liked the landscape and even if I adopted a critical standpoint I felt linked to these characters in contrast, as I detested all the things that were represented in Entranced Earth, I made it with a certain repulsion. I recall that I would say to the editor, I am disgusted because I don't think there is a single beautiful shot in this film. All the shots are ugly because it's about harmful people in a rotten landscape and it's falsely Baroque. At times, perhaps, I have tried to escape that environment, but there was a danger in attributing value to alienated elements. And I think, honestly, a lot of Carpenter's approach to the material in Escape from L.A. relates to that. And that political anger that he has and the way he's skewering things like plastic surgery, like obsession with the stars, it all relates back to his political thesis about Reagan and about what American politics have turned into. And I also think that those elements on a surface level, make the film a little less immediately pleasant and digestible as something like Escape from New York, which just yeah. is full of beautiful, formal genre pleasures. But here, some of these depictions are ugly. Oh, yeah. And they don't feel good. I mean, even Snake feels a little more depressing, you know? Yeah. A little more nihilistic, a little more detached, you know? There is this sense of decay, uh, everywhere, right? Yes. New York obviously doesn't look great in Escape from New York just because it's supposed to have been taken over by criminals. But the decay in Escape from L.A. is much more pronounced. And it also feels like a decay of the human soul in a way where it's a little more distant in Escape from New York, I guess. And, and you know, that's interesting putting it in those terms, right? Because 
when you you say it like that, you know the the New York from Escape from New York uh, ostensibly doesn't look or didn't look probably too different from what New York might have actually looked like at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas with LA and and especially its emphasis on so many recognizable landmarks and streets, you know, uh, he really is reveling in its downfall in its destruction yeah, as well. The Hollywood sign is on fire in this movie, you know? Yeah, and, absolutely. And to your point, shout out to, uh, I posted this on Twitter, but there's a Mulholland Drive sign close up and a Sunset Boulevard close up, which clearly is intentional for a guy like uh, that. Mulholland Drive, that's just an accident. He's predicting the Lynch film. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, Exactly. <laughs> But but yeah, you know, I mean, that's a really good way of like putting it, Ryan. And I think that quote sums it up perfectly. You know, Carpenter this time around, I mean, yeah, he 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 seems pissed off, uh, and and he's he's taking no prisoners <laughs> this time around. There's no redemption coming for anyone in this story, and I think yeah, that 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 is 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 explicitly clear from the get go. America's fucked. I mean, this is our president for life now. Yeah. You know, we are we're doomed to have Cliff Robertson and his now theocracy running things. And where would you go after something like that? I mean, you can't go anywhere. We've reached the logical end of the American experiment, and and uh, for him anyway, like this is where it winds up. Yeah, locked in. You know. I definitely think Glaubert Rocha would prefer Escape from L.A. over Escape from New York. Absolutely, because, yeah, it's didactic like he is, you know, and I think, yeah, it's a good point, like maybe why people don't like it, you know, because, yeah, it's silly and it's didactic, you know, it's like more of a Godard film than a, <laughs> you know, a yeah. John Carpenter movie or whatever, like uh, it does have that element to it. Uh, and I guess, yeah, I mean, there's there's multiple points where Carpenter uh, has characters reflect and say shit like, uh, well, yeah, L.A., I mean, it's like, uh, you know, an earth earthquake gang-torn hellhole, but, like, it's better than, like, Christian America. Like, <laughs> they make that crack several times, you know? So even in this, yeah, very, like, chaotic post-apocalyptic LA that is ruled by gangs and we see uh you know kids with Uzis you know like (laughs) you know at least in LA you can still smoke that's right dude yeah (laughs) for Carpenter especially I feel like that's such a pointed like joke from his perspective is that always now smoking yeah. yeah smoking is something in in you know uh Cliff Cliff Robertson's America that can get you thrown into jail, right? Yep. Or I should be even more specific, exiled to Los Angeles. Yeah. And probably electrocuted, as we see <laughs> right. several people being electrocuted in the background of the movie as, like, Snake is brought in. Uh, and, I, and I love the sort of, like, yeah, sort of, like, non-role that Stacey Keach has in this movie as, like... Uh, the, returning the, champion, Stacey Keach. <laughs> returning champion, our boy, Stacey. He's here as like yeah the police uh lieutenant or yeah, something and he, he's you like know. the stand-in for um lee van cleef lee van cleef returning champion <laughs> yeah as the sort of like you know the grizzled authority figure working for the now you know nationalized police force who is somewhat sympathetic to to snake as a figure you know because 
Stacy Keach even says at a certain point, you know, he, he almost has this kind of nostalgia for the past, right? When he says something like the good old days, the 20th century before all this bullshit, right? But even his character is a guy that is now just sort of given up and accepts his lot. And yet, in spite of that, still seems to be someone who is... Yeah, like the Lee Van Cleef character, you know, he admires Snake a little bit. You know, he likes the fact that he's a he's a badass. You know, you get that impression from him. But and it's funny too when I, you know, my the biggest sticking point I feel like when I saw this many years ago that I couldn't get over was how shitty the CGI looks. You know, and I remember being irritated and thinking like, what were they thinking? This just hasn't aged well. But this time around, encountering those moments, I didn't feel that at all i mean it, it does look like shit but i like like that and yeah. not in an ironic way and i mean maybe this is a generous reading but to me i'm like well this looks like shit and it, this place feels like shit who cares mm-hmm. the film is elegant it's still an elegant scope carpenter film oh uh, yeah but even it's like them surfing when he's surfing with Peter Fonda. <laughs> um, <yeah>. Pipeline. <laughs> it looks like something on just like bad 90s television. But at the same time, it's like, well, where is the actual fun here? Like, this is like a depraved, horrible place. Yeah. I think they did want the CGI to look good. But just encountering the film again and thinking of it as an object um, about ugliness at times, the CGI I thought was pleasant <laughs> to, to experience it again. Yeah. To me, it's like Carpenter, as someone who's like pissed off and as someone who's had uh, 20 years of, of dealing with Hollywood bullshit, you know, he's, he's sort of in my view in this film going, you know what, I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want. I'm going to have fun no matter what, you know, when you bring up like that surfing scene, like, and then like slap five and yeah, it looks ridiculous. And I'm like, that, that, that fucking rocks, you know, like that is Carpenter just being like, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks. This is something that I think is cool and I'm going to fucking do it. What is that? Tsunami snake. Tsunami. Woo! Such a big time now, mister. <laughs> Start feeling better quick, man, because you ain't got time to get out of here. Man, this is going to be some kind of ride, man. Some kind of bitch ride. Let's go. Come on. Woo! Bitch. Vision, man. Okay. Let the front edge pick you up. Don't get on your board till you ride to the top. Don't blow it. If you fall off the board, it's the big white hat. Got it? Vision. I mean, that's his ethos, though. Like, he, he's got that great film comment article, uh, Guilty Pleasures, where he lays out his, like, philosophy, you know? Bad movies? Like, I don't believe in that, you know? He forgives. He loves and forgives when he watches movies, and he loves 50 sci-fi, you know? Like, real janky shit, you know? Yeah. Like, the crawling eye or whatever. And he loves and forgives and he doesn't care like he sees it as an imaginative act you know not as oh it doesn't look realistic or whatever like he doesn't care you know right i mean it reminds me of the insane surfing sequence in die another day which does look like absolute garbage but it's because they thought it looked yeah von alert but it's because they thought it looked cool and that's the thing that's so different here, where even if John Carpenter thinks that the surfing scene in L.A. looks cool, regardless, it's, it's good enough for him. 
and like yeah. that's the amount of energy he's putting into it so if it's good enough for him it's good enough for us while something like die another day is like look how slick and sweet this is like you've never seen anything like it and it's like thing looks ridiculous but yeah it there's a, a natural calm to the the carpenter approach that's much more appealing and like in those terms then you know if like so much of this is also him just reacting to like how rotten the world is how rotten los angeles is how rotten fucking hollywood is it's like in that moment it's it's sort of like him also kind of just like clutching at whatever joy is still in his heart you know this 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 like childlike wonder of what movies are and what can be you know that that you're right Ryan in that sense it isn't like you know him trying to impress a lot of people with its you know cutting edge digital technology yeah you know it's just this this idea of like wouldn't it be great if in this moment this happens like yeah hell yeah you know with so much of what snake does this time around it's it's yeah it seems to me like carpenter looking at all the darkness around him and 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 finding in his like nihilism in his devil may care attitude like the the last spark right the last bit of flame still burning in this dark world Mm mm-hmm Yeah, speaking of uh, this particular uh, attitude of the film, uh, I think that's one thing that Glaubert Rocha may not appreciate uh, in Escape (laughs) from L.A. is its depiction of the third world army, uh, shall we say. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And and obviously, you know, uh, maybe there wasn't too much uh, thought, you know, gone into some of the elements of this film uh, as, you know, they invoke uh, Shining Path explicitly, which seems like a very weird move, uh, especially then with what follows, right? Which is uh, in, you know, Carpenter's universe, like nothing is redeemable here, right or left, right? Because what Snake finds out as he goes on this task and chases down Cuervo Jones and Utopia, the president's daughter, uh, is that, yeah, the, the you know, quote-unquote army that he's, you know, riling up is just a gang, you know, and they're ruthless and they're executing yeah. people and uh, there's no morality, there's no ideology to be found, you know? And obviously that fits with, you know, Snake's universe, right? Because he is the the radical individual, the drifter hero, the Western character, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't think Rosha would appreciate, you know, maybe some of that stuff, or maybe thought it was kind of half baked. But well, yet at the same time, <laughs> I mean, but <laughs> at the same time, as we've already been discussing, in Transit Earth is is about the problem of the left and the problem of the right, you know, and at certain points our inability to distinguish between the two. Right. Uh, And, and you see that from, from both characters, you know, both of the, the, the politicians who really start to, to, to create this sort of dichotomy of views or, or political stances, whatever, is that at times they're indistinguishable at times. Like it seems like, one is 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 you know even the, the the sort of like leftist populist candidate is sort of like but people gotta make money right you know he's like but we gotta <laughs> the the companies you know what about them you know we can't be you know screwing them over and the 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 conservative nut job who's 
by the way, in this movie, you know, I really was like, I had to eventually like be like, is that really? He's called Porfirio Diaz yeah. after the, the, the Mexican, Mexican president. Yeah. yeah, the Mexican president. You know, Porfirio Diaz in this, who is not the actual Porfirio Diaz, but <laughs> but shares some of his political views. It seemed to me even at a moment that that he was uh, uh, you know, yes, as you pointed out, he's he's often like carrying this crucifix with him, but he's also carrying. I know it's a black and white film, but I, I'm pretty black sure it was flag a flag of anarchy. Oh, I thought it was a, a going to be a red flag. I thought he was. Oh, uh, interesting. You know, because it looks black to us, but I was like, why would he be carrying a black flag? Because his whole thing is at first. I think when we're introduced to him, he's going through this whole diatribe about Christ but kind of defining Christ, Jesus Christ, as a sort of like Marxist hero, a hero of the people, you know, taking on the money lenders. And that was a tactic at a certain point. I know that that has has been used, especially in Latin America, of trying to unite these two views of like the the hardcore you know christian fundamentalists and the the more you know liberal populists the campesinos and how can we bring these two things together under this this strange banner of of christ and and liberation or liberal politics right yeah it's a form of you know populism right and i think that's sort of like what entranced earth is is showing you like, you know, in the, in the 60s, like this is Brazilian politics, right? You have to appeal to the masses, right? And we see the tactics of right and left in appealing to the peasants, the bourgeoisie, etc., right? And ultimately, yeah, mm-hmm. pa- Paulo is like, you know, this guy just bouncing, <laughs> you know, bouncing around. And he is, uh, yeah, like the sort of non-committed guy who's involved for some reason, you yeah. know, cause there is a very like shocking moment too, uh, where Paolo has, you know, he, he leaves, you know, he breaks with the, the conservative politician early in the film who he's part of a love triangle with, with Sylvie, this bourgeois woman. Uh, and he breaks, he breaks with them, uh, and gets involved with, uh, Vieira in, uh, you know, some state, you know, far away from the capital or whatever. And he's out on the campaign trail and they run this like very successful, you know, populist, like baby hugging, like tour basically. Yeah. Uh, and after he's elected, uh, all these, you know, all these locals are sort of like rising up because like things are still shit. And Paolo strikes this guy like, like a cop, you know, in defense of the senator, the liberal communist senator, whatever this guy's politics are, the left populist guy, uh, and he strikes, he beats the shit out of this guy. Yeah, and, and that's why, on a certain level, you know, he's 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 like on the path to becoming Snake Plissken, but he's not quite there yet. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he still thinks that he can fix it. You know, he still thinks he can fix it because even before that, you know, it's it's so much more cynical. Um, because I'm pretty sure he even says something about how as he's become disillusioned with Porfirio Diaz and his people, you know, uh, how do we get power? How do we get what we want? And he says something along the lines of like, well, we need to build a candidate. We like need to build the leader. We need to find the leader. And they approach Vieira and sort of like pump him up and talk him into becoming this this governor you know like running for this office 
and they 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 drink a lot of wine and you know they're they're back slapping and and he's telling them it's all going to be great you just got to say the right things more or less on the campaign trail you got to say this and people are going to love you and they're going to applaud you and Vieira he, he seems to at first really get into it because of that cuz he's like everybody's going to love me that's great that's awesome and then right after the election is this incredible moment where Paolo's then reflecting on it and he he says something like what I saw in that campaign was ultimately a tragedy. I forget the exact wording, but he's like, we won and we were fucked because we won. And then he says, how could an elected governor answer to the candidate's promises, right? That immediately it's like, okay, getting elected is one thing. That's a great game for Paolo to play with these guys. It's a great game for any politician. And then once you're elected, now you got all the campesinos coming to you and being like, what about this? You said you were going to do this. What about that? You promised us this. And Viero going, well, you say a lot of things. On, you know, there's there's a moment when he's like freaking out. He's like, we could uh, maybe get some some more funds for the school or whatever. Like that's all <laughs> he can offer, you know, like all this anger. Oh, my God. Yeah, he is just this just failure, you know. But he was like engineered that way by Paolo. I mean, like Paolo, you put it earlier in that way where you were kind of like, oh, he's sort of hollow man and 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 kind of like a schemer. And, you know, I kept thinking of him as I was watching this movie as a sort of like shitty, like, I mean, I don't know how you can get any shittier than James Carville, but I was like thinking of him as like a James Carville. Like, a Rahm Emanuel. Yeah, a Rahm Emanuel, right? The same guy kind of popped into my head, Rahm and James Carville, where he's just sort of like, He's going to these candidates and he's trying to latch on to them. And and his political mind is like, well, hey, if I can get this guy to do this, then maybe I'll make some change. And I just got to find the right candidate to and, do it. And fall in love with a, a communist organizer and right. political activist. Well, and that's the other thing that makes Paolo kind of a douchebag to me is like I kept thinking – He's just in this to get laid yes. the whole time. I mean, oh, he's, I'm he's totally. just trying 100%, to get... Dude. There's specifically a moment in the film where there is like an actual call to arms for change to happen. And when it does cut, all of that energy gets transferred in this hard cut to just him making out with Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Who I would say, you know, in thinking about how would Rosha react to Escape from L.A., I think he would still be a little bit upset because I think he, he does place a lot of importance on Sarah, who is like a full-blooded like true red communist mm -hmm. and i think he tries to be a lot more fair to his depiction of her and the way she sees the world as being something that is at least she stands for something she believes in she's not bouncing around like a pinball in a pinball machine like sure. paolo is at times yeah and she's also being used i mean she's being used by paolo you know for for sex but also for her enthusiasm for like changing people's lives for the better you know paolo is is just you know he's constantly sort of changing his speech depending on who he's with you know he's trying to speak a lot of different languages to get things for himself ultimately you know the people yeah sure that's always there in the background but yeah sarah is the true believer and she also gets taken for a ride it almost feels like Paolo is more concerned of his image as like a responsible member of the member of the bourgeois uh, at the end of the day. Like it's not about exactly what he truly believes in, but it's what he believes will make him feel as though he's transcending his class and right. be an actual 
politically conscious person. So he is just an opportunist looking around to see what the mood is, depending on different candidates, to see how he can further his image to being something that's more cultivated and something that, you know, comes across as positive and transcends the fact that he's just a bourgeois man. Yeah, because that's like a lot of what the movie is about is how he like can't let go of these reactionary tendencies or thoughts because of who he is. He's just like this rich fucking jerk off, you know? A poet. <laughs> yeah, a poet. And I mean, you know, to his credit, later in the film as things are really unraveling, he has a great moment where he's like smoking by these shades and he's like, Mar pra viu que me envolve neste doce continente. A este esquecimento posso doar minha triste voz latina, mais triste que a revolta, muito mais. Vomito na calle o ácido dólar, avançando nas praças entre ninhos, sucios com seus ojos de pájaros ciegos. Vejo que de sangue se desenha o Atlântico sob uma constante ameaça de metais a jato. Guerras e guerras nos países exteriores. Posso acrescentar que na Lua um astronauta se deu por achado. Todas as piadas são possíveis na tragédia de cada dia. Eu, por exemplo, me dou ao vão exercício da poesia. I'm a fucking poet. Like, who cares? You know? Like, and it's like, there are like good moments of introspection. You know, he's not just this dumbass, but like, man, yeah, his... But it's too easy for him throughout the movie to constantly walk away from things. And that's what he exactly, does for right. half the movie. I mean, yeah. you, you said like a pinball and that's it. You know, it's like whenever he encounters something that's difficult or challenging for him, he's constantly like, well, fuck it. Maybe I'll just go, I'll, I'll just go to the jazz orgy or whatever. And I'll just get right. laid, you know, and just drink wine. Fuck it. Right. I mean, like anytime he is, stuck i mean anytime the the people do sort of show up i mean i feel like there's one guy that and this is where like the mythopoetics of of the film come 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 through a lot because a lot of people are wearing like the same outfit for the entire movie and yeah. i almost feel like yeah they're they're meant to be archetypes at, at certain points you know they are like mythopoetic figures more than they are these you know completely actualized uh, human beings you know they're supposed to represent things like there's the one guy that's like in tattered clothes who represents like the campesinos and he's always showing up being like well they just killed so and so and what about this and 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 it seems like anytime those people suddenly show up paulo just flees you know that's his only reaction is sort of to to just run uh, from from all this, or stuff. call the cops in on the riot. You right? Know? Yeah. Totally. I mean, he hates having any of this stuff actually affect him as an individual. Yeah, because his politics are completely intellectual, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. And it is sort of a, a performance of an image. I mean, there's a really great moment that uh, sort of bites at that when he comes home after one of those big parties and he's smoking and he's walking in front of his giant bookshelf and he makes some crazy reference to the fact that poverty just keeps following you back in like it just it keeps coming back into your home like you can't shake it all off and it's as if by getting too close to all of this with his political decision making that it's infecting his personal life that he wants it to be something that's totally separate as opposed to something he believes in with his heart 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, yeah, he is a, I mean, he's the biggest piece of shit in this movie to me. I mean, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Uh, yeah. Because even a guy like Porfirio Diaz, uh, you know, who's, who's certainly a, a very villainous character and will increasingly become a, a villainous character. Like, he is exactly who he is to, I think, even the director's own perspective. Like, the thing that is far more damaging to the world are, are guys like Paolo. Are these guys who who can sort of pop in and, and make a bunch of promises and, and say all the right things. And then the minute things get too hard or too challenging for them, they can just walk away to their nice apartment and go, well, we tried, you know. I guess uh, we didn't do so good, did we, folks? You know, sorry about that. And then, yeah, smoke cigarettes and drink a bunch of wine and 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 screw some bourgeois chick. You know, I mean, he's he's a much, much, much more harmful figure, I think, to to politics, if you want to put it that way, uh, right. than anyone. I think there's a really great exchange between him and Sarah that sort of illustrates what you're talking about too and the way he responds to all of these things he has this really nasty moment where he mentions just bad news every day that defines the world i live in and he's like showcasing this exhaustion at bad news and that's his response to it right he doesn't feel motivated to change things it's just a constant torrent of bad news that's defining his world his experience and sarah's reaction is sunsets don't make me feel the pain of adolescence i give back to the landscape the vomits of experience so which is like a crazy fucking thing for a person to say to another person (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh but even beyond that like that poetic exchange like think about both of those worldviews and what both of them might accomplish you Mm -hmm. have one who is just petulant and getting tired of all the bad news and wishing that these political crises and human rights crises could solve themselves and then here is Sarah, who's thinking about anything I can give back to the landscape, if I'm potentially interpreting this right, just the idea of vomiting, like I am presenting everything I have, everything that's inside me, I'm giving it to it without a filter to the landscape. I want to be able to provide something to make some sort of change. Yeah, because when Vieira, after being elected, in part through the stewardship of Paolo, like when there is that moment where there's this kind of, you know, uh, riot essentially that develops in the streets, which which at first is just the, the, the peasants, the campesinos being like, okay, time to time to improve our lives and things aren't improving and, and everything sucks. There's like this one guy that's, that's sort of at the forefront of this demonstration and Paolo attacks him. Like not only does he go after Vieira, but he also attacks mm-hmm. this, this peasant and he, he calls him a weak chatterbox and a coward, you know, and he's right. essentially saying like, yeah. we're working, like shut your fucking mouth, you little bitch, you know, like quit complaining. Like we're trying and he assaults this guy, you know? And it's like, yeah, it's hopeless because we have a bunch of cry babies like this. You know, where's this guy's discipline to accept the fact that this is going to take time and hard work, you know? The guys like, I got seven kids and no house. You know, like I got I need help now. And and for that, Paolo sees him as the reason things aren't going to get better, right? Because of these peasants demanding too much too quickly. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of some things that Rocha himself said about Paolo and specifically like thinking about that moment when he attacks the peasant. He mentions that Paolo is a guy who swings right to left, who has ambivalent concerns about political and social problems. He, we find him in a revolution that's falling back on contradictions, and this brings about his death, because that is something we should also probably just address, is that the film begins with his death. Just like Archipelago, another Latin American quest we went on. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that too, actually. Like It's a similar framing in this sense, because I actually couldn't tell throughout the film if it was ever returning to the present or if the whole thing was flashback and just like slightly told in a disjointed way. But I guess to, just to get back to cap off this quote where he mentions that to him it's it's a parable about communist parties in Latin America. Paulo represents deep down the typical communist from Latin America. He belongs to the party without really belonging. He has a lover who belongs to the party. He places himself at the service of the party when pressurized to do so. But he also really likes the bourgeoisie that he represents. Mm-hmm. Deep down, he despises the people, and he mm-hmm. believes in the masses as a spontaneous phenomenon. So... There's obviously a lot there, and it kind of feels like a concluding statement on a lot of the things we were just talking about. But I think it's true, and I think that at times when certain elements of a film like this become confusing because it is a barrage of information, as I said, as he said, it feels like vomit at times. There is so much being thrown in our faces. But I think that one of the things that I walked away from was that clarity of vision on this guy, Paulo, just this absolute piece of work this is the source of a lot of these problems. People mm-hmm. like this and how much ill will they're contributing um, to just overall human well-being, you know? Yes, absolutely. One weird connection I think that these films have that I, that I was thinking about in my brain is the fact that uh, the capital and sort of state that Paolo is operating in in this like fic- fictional country that is definitely not Brazil. Um, <laughs> it's called El Dorado. And I was thinking about El Dorado because of something Carpenter said, you know, when when someone asked him about Escape from L.A., you know, comparing it to the original. And he's like, well, some people like Rio Bravo. Some people like El Dorado, you Mm know. Wow. And uh, I think that's a really interesting connection he's making between his own films as this Hoxian, you know, riff, this repeat. But like. El Dorado's a very different movie from Rio Bravo, even though it's the same goddamn movie, you know? So, like, there is that element of, you know, whether self-consciously or not. I mean, he's always thinking about Hawks, you know? And all the cigarette gags, I think, prove it, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, it's also, you know, El Dorado is the the fabled city of gold, right? right? And, and in, in Transdirt, there is a lot of talk about that, about like the wealth of, of, you know, the wealth of El Dorado, the wealth of the cities and stuff. And, and then we're in Los Angeles, the other city of gold, right? Oscar gold. (laughs) Other other kinds of gold, just gold, gold, you know, both El Dorados are, are just absolutely rotten in the core, you know? Yes, absolutely. And I I love that comparison, though, because when Escape from L.A. had ended, all I could think about was it's now is the time. 
it, there needs to be a third one, whether they're escaping from Miami or Chicago would be awesome. But they, they, I really think they should make another one. Oh um, God. Yeah. And in thinking about it, then it would be like the real Lobo. <laughs> that yeah. would be the third escape movie. You if, know, if you get that in his ear, uh, someone get close to Carpenter and start saying like, you gotta make your real Lobo mm-hmm. cast your son, you know, yeah. or whatever. Well, oh, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, Marsh again, but you know more about this, but wasn't, Ghosts of Mars originally being conceived as escape from Mars wasn't that going to be the? Oh, I don't know. Did about you ever that. hear that? So I I had heard I forgot where that originally Ghosts of Mars was being developed as escape from Mars and the Ice Cube character what's his name in that Desolation Jones or yeah, something like that yeah, it's yeah. like <laughs> some crazy name like that it was Snake Plissken and it was like. He was, you know, going to a prison colony on Mars. Yeah, another Hawksian siege film, you know? Yes. I could definitely see that. Yeah, I guess, you know, I'm saying Miami or Chicago. Space is probably the next logical step after what happens in in L.A. and just the world. Carpenter heads, no. The guy has, for as many great films as he has, he's got just as many, you know, abandoned projects and development hell issues mm-hmm. with other things. Um, I know at one point they were, he and Kurt Russell were talking about the idea, the the final one being called Escape from Earth. That's what it was going to be. Because it was like, well, we did the cities, we did New York, we did LA. There's no we, other cities. Yeah, yeah, and especially, you know, with where <laughs> Escape from LA winds up, you yeah. know, the idea Reset. would somehow be even bigger or something like that. But yeah, damn. God damn it. I mean, why not? If we can get that real Lobo little nugget of wisdom... Um, in his yeah. brain, I could see him approaching a third escape film with this Zen-like piece that he has found late in life. Yeah, I want to point out too. You know, Paolo in in Trance Earth is kind of a filmmaker himself. And, That's true. <laughs> and and uh, thinking about that, I really I really liked uh, this. Yeah, like the television journalist sequences because you know at a certain point in in the film. Paolo has, he's, he's been right, he's been left, and then he concocts this crazy scheme to pit all these politicians against each other <laughs> and, like, break up the current alliances. And he does this uh, after going to the jazz orgy club several times uh, with Fuentes, the most powerful businessman in the region. And uh, together... Uh, you know, Paolo sort of constructs like a media empire and uh, starts running all these hit jobs, you know, on on people and trying to sway the masses, as it were. Uh, and his, you know, his epic that we get to see uh, is called... Uh, <laughs> TV El Dorado presents Adventures of a Fortune Seeker. <laughs> a report by Paolo Martinez. Uh, and, and I don't, again, I don't, you guys maybe help me out here, like... What's what's going on with this thing? Because like it's amazing. So it's you know it's about his old friend Porfirio Diaz, and it's a it's a smear campaign against Diaz because he's trying to break Diaz's alliance with Fernandez, the president. Uh, and so he does this epic takedown on his old friend. But like the the material of the film itself is Diaz like 
wandering around his palace and his garden. Yes. And is like the implication that that footage is like real and Paolo shot it when they were friends? Or is it just like a dream space, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I can't quite tell. I mean, I think there was a follow-up scene where Diaz is mad that the like the production exists and i think maybe he was that was suggesting that he was on board when it was being filmed and then he didn't like the way it was all cut together and what was isolated and i mean i guess that's part of it too the the actual hit job is making mention of the fact that this dude just lives in isolation has no it completely out of touch with the people doesn't even interact with anyone in the population of el dorado he just lives in his little estate or his big estate and just, you know, has it all to himself. So that's much of the footage is just him wandering and then having weird reflections. And um, the sound of war in the background and with the implication, of course, that he is, yeah, this kind of like warmongering and maybe war profiting uh, sort of guy. Yeah. Well, I have two, two, two thoughts on that. Well, one, I mean, don't forget, the, the, the film opens and, and he talks about how he says something along the lines of how he gave his youth to Diaz. Like he yeah. was at a certain point enamored with him and, and believed in him. So to your first question, like the footage could simply be from those times, you know, when he was like an acolyte of, of Diaz, a, a, sure. a, a Diazista or something, you know, when he was a part <laughs> of that. But, but the other thing that's going on there that is really interesting and where this, you know, I think gets right to like Rocha's actual, like, you know, and you sort of made the joke, Marsh, definitely not Brazil. Like that whole piece is basically like the recent history of Brazil and, and where the country's gone and where their leader took them. And, and specifically the point that he's making about, you know, uh, all of his betrayals of these various dictators, you know, like his, his rise is through this kind of constant political scheming of aligning himself with a dictator and then betraying that dictator as soon as fortune, you know, fell on that guy, you know, or fortune left that guy. And then he would switch over to another guy. And, and it even mentions like the period where uh, Brazil got involved in World War II. It doesn't explicitly say that here, but 41 to 45, you know, 13,000 soldiers were killed. And for what, you know, why did Brazil get involved in World War II? What did that mean to make X-Splint? X-Splint? <laughs> right? no. To make X-Splint money. But yeah, I mean, like that, that, that takedown, as much as it's sort of like Paulo in this film, uh, trying to, to knock Diaz down and, and, you know, bring up the, the dirty business of X-Splint, uh, it's also Rocha talking about Brazil and where Brazil has gone over the last 20 years. I wish I could speak Portuguese to know what uh, the like acronym of Explint specifically stood for, because I could tell that that was one of those really inspired, almost Pinchonian type acronyms for an evil corporation, because the way it's translated in English is the company of international exploitation. Yeah. So I would love to know, like, word for word, what, what all of that actually stands for. <laughs> Thank you. 
dude, what a new, what a little news report that thing is, you know? Yeah. All in these like roving wide angles throughout this palace. Like it's a great sequence, you know? And I like that we get, yeah, I mean, we get like a lot of mixed kind of modes here as Ryan alluded to, or even explicitly said in his intro, this also has a, a documentary quality a direct cinema uh, quality to it. Uh, and, you know, my favorite part of the movie that I'm sure you guys loved as well is when the little senator guy uh, dances at the, <laughs> uh, like, left-wing celebration in the streets. And uh, I read that that's... That that guy just got carried away. Like that was yeah. just, that was just like a documentary moment. Like that was not scripted. And in fact, a lot of the stuff they shot quote unquote on the campaign trail, they just shot during an actual election season. And we're just like kind of telling people like, yeah, this guy's running and like having them follow him and ask him questions. Wow. So there's like Amazing. that just total documentary aspect to it that is perfectly woven in. There's even some shots you guys might remember that have like tons of people in them, like huge crowds. Oh yeah. People and you go playing like, drums yeah, and, and you music. Go like, How and... the fuck do they get money for this? That's from a documentary he made like two years earlier for he was shooting a political documentary about elections. So that's real footage of elections then here repurposed as narrative. Uh, and there's all kind of little cheats and tricks that he does with uh, the the editing there. So there's a lot of, yeah, like Eisensteinian uh, sort of like hybridization or whatever. Like. Yeah, I was really curious about a lot of that crowd stuff because I was just wondering like how on earth he was able to wrangle that many people, even if they were just volunteer extras for the day. So that makes sense. That's interesting. He's sort of, he's like two years early on medium cool, you know, know, using a very similar approach to weaving that in the reality into the reality his film is interacting with. There's a few of those where Vieira... Uh, is is just lost in that yes. crowd, right? Even during these like political rallies, like Vieira has already learned that it's like this is not going to end well for me. <laughs> like <Yeah>. the everyone <laughs> everyone's into this right now, but like oh fuck, what happens if I get elected? By this point, because now he's running for an even higher office, right? right? You know, the first part of the film is is where they get Vieira elected governor, and then there's all these problems because he's got to do something and he doesn't know what to do. And now this time around when, when Paolo's once again sort of leapt to him and been like, you know, you're going to be the guy, you're going to stand up to, to Porfirio Diaz. We're going to use you for this. And Fuentes is dirty uh, businessman money to fund the whole uh, operation. Exactly. This time around Vieira, he just looks fucking like scared shitless. Yeah. <laughs> He's <Yeah>. so, so <laughs> terrified. Everyone is like going nuts in those crowds and dancing and celebrating. And he's like the one guy so confused that is like, Oh man, I got a bad feeling about all this. You know, for me with the topic, like, you know, why I was very pleased with this film. I like this film for a lot of reasons, but again, the idea of focusing on sort of like, you know, bad elected officials. I mean, again, like Porfirio Diaz is like, it's an obvious one because he's just this, you know, this fascist nut job, you know. He's the God and country guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he's the obvious one. But, you know, Vieira being the sort of like... The sad sack yeah, populist. Impotent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 fucking dog catcher who's suddenly running for fucking president or whatever. You know this this. I think what was his initial 
job. He was basically like a city councilman or an alderman or something like that. Who's now eventually like, you know, leading a populist movement in the country and yet has no idea what he's doing. Like this is like the, the, the quintessential idea for me of, of misrepresentation, misrepresentation. And, and like the most realistic one as well, you know, the one that I think most people are, are familiar with and, and encounter, you know, are these people that we put our hopes in and then, you know, day one, they start breaking their promises or, or Mm -hmm. at the very least, you know, kicking it down the line and saying, you know, well, we, we could do this if X, Y, and Z, but you know, the likelihood of us getting X before we even get Y and Z is not good folks. So, you know, maybe lower your expectations a little bit, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, he very explicitly is constantly talking about change. He is going to bring change. He is someone who champions change. But then once he's encountering opportunities to create change or to build a plan for change, right? He's just having people come up to him, sharing their grievances, and he's like, add it to the list. This will be addressed uh, at a later date. And he's even called to task for it by other members of his team saying, you need to actually have moral opinions. You need to have an ethos that you stand by and make that a part of your policy as you're moving forward with all of these things. And I agree. I think he represents perfectly misrepresentation, this idea of a politician who claims they're going to make all of this change, and then once they actually get seated, because they don't actually align themselves with an actual moral code, it it all just becomes, well, hopefully I can get some of the stuff done, but these roadblocks are legitimate, and I may not be able to overcome them. Yeah. There's a really very darkly funny moment uh, that I want to highlight where, like, this is, you know, on, I think, like the, the Vieira for president sort of sequence. Uh, and Paolo's just, you know, he hates the people. He just fucking hates them so much. <laughs> and there's a, you know, there's this this Campesino that comes up and he's like, as you, I think you, you referenced this earlier, right? He's like, I have seven kids and nowhere to live. And, and some guys just start going, extremist, extremist, mm-hmm. extremist, oh, you yeah. know, in this hilarious over the top moment. But like also not over the top, you know? Yeah. And, and there's like, you know, a guy, a guy specifically <laughs> says to him, hunger and illiteracy are extremist propaganda. Yep. Like, yeah, they're like, there's no, there's no hunger in El Dorado, you know, just like. And what winds up happening to that guy? Like, he, he suddenly is like on the ground with a gun in his mouth. And a noose a, around his neck. And a cross on his chest, you know, as they're all calling him an extremist agitator, basically. Yep. That moment is really crazy when he has the gun in his mouth and we don't hear the gun go off and we don't see any actual depictions of violence. Because there's. Throughout the film, there are plenty of gunshots. The actual sounds of rifles going off is layered over the soundtrack at many points in the film. And then I was wondering, like, that moment actually confused me when I was watching it. And I did find a quote that made me think about the way we've talked about Jonathan Rosenbaum (laughs) responding to Silence of the Lambs. Because the interviewer asked Rosha about the fact that there is such a strong sense of violence, but we never see these things, such as the revolver in the mouth of the peasant. And Rosha mentions... 
when violence is shown in a descriptive form, it pleases the public because it stimulates their sadomasochistic instincts. But I wanted to show the idea of violence, and on occasions even a certain frustration brought on by violence. We ought to reflect on violence and not make a spectacle of it. So, I mean, he's basically saying the same thing. He's like, people who want to see me fire a gun in this peasant's mouth, like, those are the sickos. Everyone's mm -hmm. demanding that they can see this violence on display, but there's no reflection. There's no thoughtfulness put in practice here. And it's also, like, so much more, like, dark simply because there's an element there implying, like, this guy would just be disappeared as well, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Right. I mean, regardless yeah. of whatever the fuck winds up happening to him, and, and they, they don't kill him there, it's sort of like, well, that guy's fucked, you know, and the realities of, of, of a guy like Russia who lived through the, the fascist dictatorships of Brazil, like is very well aware of that. But, but what's also doubly terrifying here is that this is supposed to be the sort of like left wing populist candidate that this is happening with, right. you know, <laughs> and Vieira is like totally powerless even in that situation like there's there's a moment i think right after that where Vieira kind of gets frustrated and he's like yelling at at uh paulo i think and he's like look i'm not here to be some sort of like political clown like i didn't agree to this to just be some fucking goofball so like help me like we got to do something and and Vieira doesn't know how to make anything happen and and everyone around him is sort of pulling in a different direction you know, and it's like, we're supposed to be the good guys here. And, and this is all going to shit so quickly. There's an image that repeats a few times throughout the film that to me sort of evokes that a little bit, this idea of pretending that you're going to actually go forward with action, but then not following through with it. And there's many moments in the film where people take their guns and they like hold them in the air but they either never pull the trigger or were never granted the sound of gunshots as they're holding their guns in the air. So it then becomes somewhat of like an empty gesture. Because there's even a moment when someone fires their guns into the air to get everyone's attention during like a carnivalesque rooftop party. Um, and when he does that, we don't hear those gunshots, but everyone still stops and listens. So Roche is like drawing attention to the fact that there's a, an, an, an element of the sound design missing there. So in those other moments when we have these guns pointed in the air, we're not hearing these bullets going off. And instead, he's placing the sound effects of bullets over totally different moments in the film. And to me, that's, I think, purposefully symbolic of that, of a, a, a large posture or a gesture that ends up meaning nothing in practice. Yeah. Whereas in... Uh, Escape from L.A., we get a lot of gunfire. <laughs> yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of violence as spectacle, which Rocha would not Full on like. depiction, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are moments when Snake is, is gunning down, you know, uh, seven men at a time in a gunslinger showdown, you know. And I think this is some of Carpenter's, you know, self-aware satire on Hollywood and, and his own career, uh, if you sort of look at Snake as kind of, yeah, this this sort of representative of, of Carpenter as well, like, what is the crime ultimately that 
Snake Plissken has been brought in for this time around. Gunfighting for, uh, for for money for profit, yeah. right? And think about Carpenter's career at this point as well. The man has been a gun for hire in a few situations, mm, absolutely. You know? And so, like, that's where Snake Pliskin is at this point. He's like, well, he's just shooting people for money. You know, it's not even to to save a, a president or a daughter or or something like that. He's just shooting guys. For profit. Just like memoirs of an invisible man. (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about earlier, right? I mean, he lost his independence after the thing, and only rarely did he get it back. Like Prince of Darkness and They Live were indies, but most of the other work was, yeah, you know, this gun for hire, you know? Yeah. And that's where Snake is. And like, he's still good at it, he's still great at it. You know, but yeah, that's again, that's the 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 even even further down that path of sort of cynical nihilism that that Snake Plissken and perhaps Carpenter have gone. You know that there there isn't any politics behind it. You know, in the the preceding film, Escape from New York, like you know, as Snake is is pushing towards this. I feel like you still see in Snake this idea of like the war hero, the guy that at one point did believe in in America enough to to put the flag on his shoulder and like go fight for this country. And the Snake here this time around, like we are so far from the idea of Snake as the war hero. This, you know, that's yeah. the big deal everybody makes in the first film. This time around, everybody's like, "Dude, you're the badass criminal. You're the yeah. bandit. You're the guy that no one can kill." Like, no matter how many times they try. I feel like in that type of moment, the element of the Western really comes into play. He feels like a hero who has been mythologized in dime store novels. So someone who did have some truth to their behavior and actions, and then the population read about them in sensationalized, you know, texts. And then so when they encounter him, that's the history they believe. And the key difference between the two films being in the first one, everyone says... I thought you were dead. And in the second one, they say, I thought you would be taller, right? So again, it's and this idea of this image of this myth, right? And and so many of Carpenter's movies are Westerns, no matter what the, the other genre he's playing with, obviously. And I think this film is, is no exception. And, you know, Glauber Rocha himself was a huge fan of the American Western, obviously, right? He's got chapters on Ford in his on cinema book, you know? Uh, so I think, yeah, he would, he would jive with, you know, I think the sort of like, just as he's playing with these like political archetypes of Brazil at the time, I think he would appreciate how Carpenter's playing with the Western archetypes, you know? Because ultimately that's what we have, right? These characters who represent present certain things, you know, and Snake, yes, is Carpenter, is uh, the lost American at the end of the 20th century going like, what happened? You know, the boomer who wakes up finally and goes, what is going on? Mm -hmm. You know, for those who don't know, it should be pointed out that Kurt Russell actually had a hand in writing the screenplay. He sure did. Kurt Russell's also a smoker, a lifelong smoker. So like all the cigarette (laughs) gags are also like Kurt Russell being like, I'm sure the two of them sitting there in in Hollywood in the 90s being like, you can't smoke anywhere anymore, you know? Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that sucks, doesn't it? Um, But also uh, Kurt Russell isn't the tallest guy in the world. So I feel like 
all the jokes about, I thought you'd be taller are also jokes, you know, at Kurt Russell's expense, you know, in like a haha, you know, in jokey way that, you know, Kurt Russell is this action hero and this guy that's been such a huge presence in other movies, you know, in Tombstone, he looks like he's seven feet tall and that's, you know, well, certainly he probably ghost directed it and may puffed himself up a little bit. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> no, exactly. I think that's like the joke that they're having this time around and being like, Kurt Russell's actually kind of short, you know? <laughs> yeah. He may be short, but he's certainly still fucking ripped in that movie. He looks so good, even though there's that gap of years between New York. I mean, I don't know. I think he looks amazing. Yeah. And then I oh, love yeah. that little anecdotal bit of trivia that that was the original costume and he still had it and it still fit. They yeah. thought they were going to have to make a new one for him. So I love in the beginning when he shows up with that like faded jacket. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think we should for a little though kind of also focus on the 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 politician uh at the at yeah. the core mm-hmm. of escape from LA. Cuz yeah. we mentioned him, but I don't think we've really dived into how great uh, you know, for as little screen time as he has relative to Kurt Russell in this film, how awesome Cliff Robertson is as the president. Dude, he is so disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the first things we learn about him is that he's just willing to have Kurt Russell assassinate his daughter. He's like, oh, yeah. she's, she's not important anymore. She's lost to me. Like, get rid of her and get me my little device that she's stolen from me. He also uh, explicitly refers to a final solution uh, yes. at a certain <laughs> point. Um, but I, I think the casting here is is actually brilliant, Andy, and it's something we've talked about a lot, which is uh, classic Hollywood actors lost in a post classic Hollywood world and seeing Cliff Robertson in the nineties as this like theocratic nightmare, he really does feel just so off, so different. I mean, he couldn't feel any more different than Kurt Russell in their acting styles, you know, or even next to Stacy Keach. Like he does seem like this very just presence apart. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and he's like, he's stilted. uh, He's, he's, He's orating more than he's like talking to people, just like in, you know, sort of pit in the pendulum when we talked about that and the ways that, you know, Stuart Gordon kind of foresaw where the country was headed, perhaps even before. So, I mean, like Carpenter here, there's a lot of things that he really kind of nails and, and, and especially with the, the politics of this movie with the president. And, you know, I, 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 I couldn't help this time around, like seeing Cliff Robertson kind of as a, Trump sort of figure, you know, and granted like Trump like isn't as overtly religious, but again, this idea of, you know, wanting to sort of make himself president for life and, and, and one other sort of very superficial kind of quality is like their hair because Cliff Robertson (laughs) always a thing about him in, in almost every movie I've seen him in is just that that hair, that that huge comb over of his mm-hmm. that that looks like a helmet of hair, uh, and and in this film, like I just could not help but but see that kind of connection, you know? Uh, sure, or even like changing the capital to Lynchburg, Virginia, as Trump would want to change the nation's capital to Mar-a-Lago, you know? Sure, and like, you know, Bush too, right? I mean, George W. Oh, yeah. Bush and his like push towards the ev- evangelical right. I mean, it isn't 
just Trump. I think the the Trump thing for me is a sort of like superficial kind of physical right. quality to it, and the fact that he is like a big buffoon and a coward, caked with makeup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, Trump did use religion as a sort of prop, uh, but but oh, Bush, yeah. you know, it was much more like he fucking was the 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 believer in a certain sense, like the mighty fist of God. Armageddon will descend upon the city of Los Angeles, the city of Sin, the city of Gomorrah, the city of Sodom, and waters will arise and separate this sinful, sinful city from our country. Well, and there's, you know, another predictive uh, element of L.A. is uh, the Valeria Galino character, Taslima, that he meets like in the in the you know, brush at some point and they're hauled into the Beverly Hills uh, plastic surgery center where Bruce Campbell is reigning as uh, the surgeon general, the surgeon general (laughs) of Beverly Hills uh, with insane, you know, like Rick Baker makeup or whatever. Uh, But he meets this woman and uh, you know, she's like, yeah, I I was, I was a Muslim living in South Dakota. I just got deported. Yeah. That was my crime. (laughs) That was, that was my crime, you know, in this new America. And again, you know, pre 9-11, but America's Islamophobia is not a secret, you know, but obviously it would become uh, significantly more pronounced, you know, along with the, that sort of, yeah, fundamentalist rise. Sure. And even right now, you know, and this is part of the reason why I chose the topic, as I said to you, you know, sort of look at the news, like look where we're headed and you look at what's just happened in our fucking country and not to get on a, a huge political rant, Andy but it's like, box, let's go. <laughs> yeah, no, but you know, it's like, I mean, are we drifting towards fucking, you know, moral crimes? Is that where we're heading now? I mean, like, it's a terrifying moment for so many people to think how, uh, you know, religion is playing a massive role in shaping people's lives in this country. And the fact that people, you know, they're, they're trying to, 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 to turn, you know, the, the fucking Bible into the, the letter of the law in this country, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, they make such a point of it in LA about how people are going to be deported who are unable to live within a moral society and the way that a moral society has been redefined excessively every year as they, you know, keep progressing towards this like ultimate horrifying endpoint, just in terms of like specifically what's going on right now, it does very, feel very much in line with that ethos, creating a new moral society, or at least hearkening back to one to become the letter of the law. You know, and in that exchange he has with Taslima, you know, where she's sort of, as you already pointed out, you know, she's kind of like, well, yeah, it sucks here, but at least... I can be a Muslim woman, you know, like I'm, I'm, there's nowhere else for me to get deported to. And, you know, there are all these freedoms that, that we now have in this, this, this hell hole, this, this prison Island. Uh, and you know, she, I believe at a certain point is like kind of talking to him about like, don't you think about the future? What about after this? And, 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 and snake says to her, I believe the future is right now. Like that's a line that comes out of snake Pliskin's mouth, you know? And I also was thinking in the context of this conversation, like Carpenter saying, like, we're always talking about the future. Like the future is right fucking now. The decisions we make, the choices that we make, the way we live our life, like that's this moment, you know, that we have in front of us. And also in a weird way, 
the kind of predictive quality of it. Like this movie set in the future, but this is right now, folks. Like this is happening. Certainly not to the the almost cartoonish degree that we've depicted here, but folks, this is America. Yeah, I mean, if anything, the president that we ended up with after 2013 when this film is set is almost more cartoonish than the depiction of the president in this film. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, and again, it's, you know, it's all related, right? Because Trump comes from the, the fun house of American television, you know? Uh, and that's what Escape from L.A. is all about, the, the, the fun house of American entertainment and politics and how they're the same thing now. It's the 90s. Wake up, people, you know? And that's obviously even, you know, sort of embodied in a certain way by uh, Buscemi uh, in this film as Maps to the Stars Eddie, this sort of like sort of charlatan, you know. He's a lot like Paolo, actually. I was going to say, he's a Paolo-like figure for sure. He's just, (laughs) yeah, this huckster who, you know, he's got his tour of L.A. he sells on tape, but he's also an agent. Mm -hmm. And again, with like the meta Hollywood commentary, there's like a a whole thing where, where he's acting like he's putting together a package, you know, for a (laughs) studio. Right. He's like, all right, we're going to get snake. We're going to get Cuervo. We're going to bring it all together. And like, he's explicitly, yeah. Like those are, those are the words of a producer that Carpenter is like putting into his mouth. And at the drop of the hat, he will fuck you over. Yeah. Just (laughs) absolute hollow man. Yeah. Charlatan. (laughs) good for nothing absolutely paolo style yeah i also thought when i was listening to his like his his his, like his tour on mini disc or whatever that it really reminded me like in the tone of greg turkington's uh like on cinema like i thought uh, the location reports or whatever like Hollywood, the the big city, you know, like it, just the total Hollywood, of it. California. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. Know? Where's Cuervo Jones' place? Oh, he's the man with the juice snake. He's got the president's daughter. He's setting up something big, but I got a feeling you know all about that, right? Location. That way. And if you're gonna go through Beverly Hills, you're gonna need a map. It's pre-recorded. I narrated it myself. Welcome to your very own Map to the Stars. It's me. Sure, we all know the big one wiped out the entertainment industry here in L.A., but the glamour and excitement of Hollywood is still alive. So, come with me and see where the stars are. Hey, Snake, you're going to need this, I'm telling you. I I said the exact same thing to Molly, like, out loud when it was happening. And I, you know, the, the, the moment that I think is my favorite with, you know, just getting back to, like, Cliff Robertson is, you know, bad you know, misrepresentation is ultimately like when it looks like shit is going down. Cuervo is, is leading this third world uh, uh, invasion of Brazil is invading Miami. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Paolo's boys finally got it together and they're, they're coming for Miami. 
he just completely crumbles and it just like his, his insanity like builds his desperation, you know, where he like at a certain point wants to get out of there. Like, he's like, why did I trust any of you? I think my favorite moment is, is when, you know, he's just like, no, nope, uh, I, you know, get my chopper. I'm getting the fuck out of here whatever. And Stacy Keach is like, no, you've got to stay here and face this. You're the goddamn president of the United States of America. And then like Cliff Robertson just kind of like breaks down and he goes like, he says something like, I need to go to my quarters. I've got to pray. And he's, got, he's like, he's just clutching his Bible. And that's my favorite moment of, yep. of him. You know, yeah. and again, like Robertson just fucking nails it, you know? And I think it's helpful for a guy like Cliff Robertson that he's Canadian, you know? So it's very easy for him to look at America as an outsider and really like ham it up, you know? Clutching the Bible like Porfirio Diaz. Oh my goodness! Well, uh, you know, I guess I guess we should address, uh, you know, one of the film's uh, silliest sequences, which is of course one near and dear to my heart, which is when uh, Snake Plissken has to play basketball for his life. Oh fuck yeah! Uh, mm, which again, I think yeah. speaks to you know. Carpenter's fun attitude. This is a guy that loves basketball, and you know I love basketball as well. Oh and, yeah, uh, it's, the, it's my favorite <laughs> sequence in the uh, the whole film. So it's set up, you know, like in the first one. There's like the big coliseum fight, you know. Uh, here it's uh, you got to score ten points in a caged basketball shot uh, clock. Yeah, ten, you have a ten second shot clock to score ten points. In a caged, uh, you know, court in the L.A. Coliseum. Uh, the best moment, too, of, like, location work in it. Because they're in the L.A. Coliseum, and it is awesome. And in that, like, wide-ass fucking, oh, dude, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's really effective the way they trashed that place to make it look like it was, you know, enduring the wreckage of the, you know, the new population of Los Angeles. Um, the design of a lot of these large-scale set pieces are really impressive. And then... You know, so it's just this hilarious sequence of Kurt Russell playing basketball. And it just, yeah, it's excessive. It is, it exists for like no good reason at all other than, yeah, this spirit of fun that they're having with this. Like, wouldn't that be funny, you know? Uh, and yeah, you get executed if you lose, you know, this basketball game that you're playing by yourself. And uh, this is the city of the Lakers, right? <laughs> yes. You know? There is, you know, there is a, a multiple references to the Lakers in the film, right? Someone says, like, winning time, and, like, people are always, you know, peppering that in there. So uh, it's Hollywood. And know? gotta say, uh, Kurt, you know, he can ball, yeah. for sure. Like, he's got some good form there. I like. I love, like, analyzing, like, his, his shots in that sequence, you know, the first one, the nice, easy layup, and then, oh, he's... The jumper. The jumper, the mid-range jumper, three-point. And the funny thing this time around for me is, like, as, like, Cuervo Jones is, like, laying out the rules of shot clock, you know? He says, two points a basket, no three-point bullshit. And I was thinking, like... Popovich, Greg Popovich was somehow in his ear, you know, Popovich, not a fan of the three pointer. That's know? right. Popovich would love shot clock. He really would. Absolutely. Here, here's my question. I don't know if either of you know this, but you know, it climaxes with him having to make a full court heave as time is running down. Did they get Kurt heaving one of those or was that CGI? What I think, think he did it. 
He did it? No, it's real. Yeah, I confirmed it afterwards because that was something I had like known going yeah. in. And when we watched it, it's funny, it doesn't even look real. Molly pointed out the fact she's like, oh, I saw where they did it, where the ball moves from the CGI. And I said, no, it, this is so real that it looks fake. <laughs> like, that was the wind. That's so... So I was like, look it up. And we looked it up. And it is, at least, you know, on the trivia for the film, it says he made all of the shots, including the full court shot. Yeah. And he had practiced for like months oh. uh, in prep for that moment. Um, but it is one of those things that it's so real it looks fake. Yeah, because you see it, it just cuts to behind him as he begins this, like, yeah, sidearm chuck, full court style. And it plays out, you know, Bazinian <laughs> realism, you know, space and time. <laughs> there it is. And it goes in. I mean, it, it, it's awesome. You know? Kudos in that case. To Kurt Russell for playing it so baller. fucking cool as well after making yeah. that shot because he just stands there as Snake Plissken and then the crowd just gradually turns. The crowd is with Snake ultimately. You know, the people are with a guy like Snake and then what does Buscemi say? You know? This town loves a winner, you know, but but man, like that that is... For me, no matter how many times I see this movie, like that scene will get me and just make me want to jump up out of my chair. I fucking love it so much. <laughs> Definitely. I was reflecting on the practicality of the executions in that sequence because it's a chain, you know, this is like the court is surrounded by a chain link fence and there are men with rifles on all sides of this fence. So yeah. when someone doesn't complete the shot, they all fire at him. Yes. I was thinking that is a great degree of trust that they all have in each other's aim that none of those bullets were missing no. the man in the court and shooting each other on the opposite yeah, side no they would have they would have blown each other away <laughs> i thought the exact <laughs> yeah. same thing this time around i really no matter how many times i've seen it for some reason just this time i was like they all would have shot each other <laughs> like what the hell you know but again like, there would have been so many stray bullets but it yeah. looks so much better to have yeah. the, the guy entirely carpenter raised. likes a little symmetry you know? absolutely yeah of course of course and and uh you know again like we we have another great uh we have another great moment in the film to that to me that i love which is the 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 arrival of of hershey who's been talked about throughout you know the film we got to get to hershey and hershey hates cuervo more than anybody and then we finally do get to meet hershey and it is oh looking so hot pam greer as hershey slash car jack malone from his past now yes yeah, snake dead names car jack oh, like a hundred times oh, yeah. dude yeah. he's not he's not up to date Yes. Yeah. So it was 2013, I guess. You know, it's the 90s, but also it's 2013. <laughs> so some of the yeah, some of the progressive lingo hadn't even made it that far yet when the film is actually set. So, yeah. To be fair. Mm -hmm. But really, the point of me bringing up Hershey is is also uh, simply to 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 push us really to the the climax of the film, where where Hershey is the the key figure to help Snake finally like get what he needs, you know, get this device and get out of there. And, and, and they come up with a plan, they come up with a solution and it's a pretty novel one. As far as I'm concerned, a commando raid yeah. on Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once again, in commando raid territory, I thought during the hang gliding sequence, 
my guys are going to like this. You know, if I know anything yeah. about the gauntlet, it's that uh, 33% of all films end with a commando raid. And this one is no exception. Hardly. And yeah, this is another, I think, kind of sequence that people, you know, may laugh at, right? Because it's a, an epic hang gliding sequence. Uh, and then they they fly into this mock uh, Disneyland, the Happy the, Kingdom, the Happy Kingdom on the Universal backlot, because uh, obviously Disney is not going to uh, let them film there. But it's clear what is intended, you know, the assault on Disneyland, yes. which again is another very advanced concept, you know, for the '90s. Carpenter already out there pointing his finger at the mouse as uh, a source of conservative ideology that yeah. needs to be attacked. The, the the takeover of America is being staged at the Happy Kingdom. Like that's the big, you know, that's the big like beachhead that they're yep. building to invade America. And the only person standing in its way is our man Snake and Pam Greer. And this is, I know, you know, from reading about the production, this was uh, a total nightmare. Uh, and I think some of maybe the choppiness of it that maybe people find funny or awkward or even the CGI of some of the flying, you know, <laughs> uh, it was, you know, for Carpenter, he talks about it as one of the most difficult technical things he ever had to do. And they had problems with noise and neighbors and hours, and they didn't get the shooting hours that they wanted. So like he didn't get to shoot it how he wanted because of time and because of money. Uh, and there, there are regrets there, but I still think it's a pretty fun sequence. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's cool. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the big climactic battle in Alex Cox's Walker it has like a similar visual style to it, I guess, just like the scale of all the moving pieces and like the, yeah, I don't know. But I, I think it reads pretty cool. I was I walked away impressed this time around. Yeah, well, it's pure. It's just like pure violent chaos, you know. And like that's the only way a a raid like this could work. You know, they're up against huge numbers, so they just get in there and just mix it up, and everybody's shooting everybody. Yeah, so. Uzi's everywhere. Like <laughs> yeah. the submachine gun is truly the the gun of this movie. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. And people are just spray spraying everywhere. They're coming down on the hang gliders spraying. <laughs> in their Uzis, you know, like it is so ridiculous. And of course, uh, it is a Hollywood movie. So uh, Snake's got to go, you know, fist to fist with Cuervo Jones, because in all this chaos, the special characters obviously meet each other in the middle of the battlefield. Well, it wouldn't be a true Western if it didn't wind up with a duel. Absolutely. Right. right? But there's a lot of hokum surrounding the remote control of the Sword of Damocles, <laughs> which we haven't even talked about. Uh, but to set up, you know, the end of the film, I suppose, where we're headed, uh, the remote control that the president's daughter stole and was given to Cuervo and Shining Path and the Third World Army is a, a device that can send like EMPs basically to uh, whatever targeted location that will completely shut down all communications, right? Yeah, and power. And, and power everything. and everything. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, this, this idea of, yeah, returning to the Dark Ages yes. or whatever. Because some people may have been asking, like, Brazil's going to invade the United States? That'd be like, what, five minutes, that thing that probably that fight would last, you know? But no, they... Cuervo has an ace up his sleeve in this sort of Damocles. So, so that's why the president is so desperate to get it back. 
Exactly. And there's a lot of like, you know, jockeying for this thing and switching and, and, and all sorts of just nonsense. Lots of switcheroos. Yeah. <laughs> that that EMP thing, like I couldn't wrap my head around it this time around. Just thinking of how it would actually have its supposed devastating effect. Like when Stacy Keach mentions that this will send us back to the dark ages, all the past 500 years of progress will like completely go away. All I could think of was like, does this EMP like erase all the books does it change the fundamental properties of energy like i don't understand no. how they like cannot rebuild from this well it would probably trigger a collapse that could never be recovered if you just shut down right. the entire global power supply like yeah. with no means I mean, to immediately put it back i mean right. like no i definitely don't <laughs> doubt that it wouldn't be like unbelievably devastating and so many people would die infrastructure would collapse i mean planes would fall from the sky like it would be horrible yes. but I, at the very least like they wouldn't have lost all of the knowledge they had accumulated right. at least yeah. in like a it's, certain it's extent a bit, you're right you it's know? a bit hyperbolic the way they put it but it, it yeah. has to be here you know it's a carpenter <laughs> sure, movie sure. you know and like yes I, I thought the exact same thing where it's just like yeah it would be bad but the terms that he puts it in where it's like <laughs> we're starting from square one with the discovery of fire which is certainly also the the implication here at the ending of Earth Year um, Zero. Yeah, Earth Year Zero, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you know, or as Snake says, welcome to the human race, you know. But but yeah, it's it's uh I mean, look, people talk about it today, you know, like the future of of whatever, you know, modern warfare that the United States faces, like our biggest threats, is like that's the first thing that would happen is, you know, cyber attacks would start to shut down our power grid and stuff like that. So it is like a very devastating threat, you know, like, and if you can't fly your planes, if you can't, you know, if you can't work your radar, if you can't do any of that, I mean, like, yeah, in an impending invasion, yeah, we'd be fucked. So Snake delivers the device and, and, or again, maybe, uh, maybe not. Right. <laughs> After yeah. like, yeah, there had like five or six different switcheroos of this device. And at one point, even decorating the little CD with some nail polish to make it, uh, be like more, um, easily disguised, uh, by the prying eyes of all these villainous people. And of course, as is planted early on in the movie, uh, he appears to, uh, the president and his uh, goons uh, as a hologram, uh, as a means to trick them, uh, which is a bit of military technology that uh, they gave him, you know, when he went on his journey. And so uh, he turns it back on them and he tricks them uh, again with a sort of like press conference scenario, right? Like uh, the first uh, escape film. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And Snake has that moment, you know, he has a choice, you know, and, and Cliff Robertson as the president even puts it towards him. Like, who's it going to be, Pliskin? Who's it going to be, Snake? I think they call him Snake in that moment. Who's it going to be, us or them? And this is really where that ultimate, you know, uh, nihilistic moment for, for Carpenter emerges. And again, uh, uh, in, in connecting us to the other film, you know, like, who's it going to be, the left or the right, who are you going to choose? And that's when Snake basically says, one side or the other, the world's a fucking shitty ass place, right? So he makes his, <laughs> his vote. He places his vote. And that's for 
no one ultimately. Yeah, Snake behaves like someone who just finished watching Entranced Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. He's fed up, you know, with everything. And uh yeah, he uh he deactivates uh modern civilization. <laughs> the know? whole fucking world. And and yeah, I mean I think you know, as, uh, you know, yeah, it's goofy, but I, I do think it's provocative, you know, even in the way that it's provoked us to discuss the actual ramifications of such a thing. But I, I think what is interesting, you know, is, yeah, you know, is that preferable to Cliff Robertson's America? Like, yeah, you know, and I think, I mean, for me, you know, like, yeah, yeah, shut it off. It's fine. You know, well, and, I'm I'm and, cool with that. And again, though, fr- from Snake's perspective, you know, he he isn't choosing Brazil. You know, he's sure. he's 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 nuking everything. You know, he's yeah. he's he's, the he's whole globe. Right. Everyone is now back on, you know, the same playing field, a level playing field, or something. Right. If if it is in the terms again that that Stacey Keach has put it, you know, you're sending everybody back to the dark age. From Snake's perspective, like, fine, let's all go there together, right? And that's why he says, welcome to the human race. Like, we're all fucking creatures on this planet once again. Well, as, uh, you know, as is said in uh, in Tranced Earth, history isn't changed by tears. (laughs) It's very true. Yeah. It's changed by, yeah, you know, uh, d- doing something, uh, doing something radical, yeah. you know, and that and snake uh, is not going to shed a single tear from his single eye for this rotten fucking world. No, absolutely not. And, you know, uh, Paolo, uh, <laughs> similarly, I think, uh, in his, uh, death fantasia, after he's shot by the police, I think he, uh, at least in the way it's sort of shown in the film, I think he's sort of too late has come to, you know, that moment of action, right? Because as he, you know, encounters all this, uh, you know, pushback against everything, he's sort of trying to do change Brazil, whatever the fuck that means, change El Dorado, <laughs> excuse me. Right, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he realizes, you know, as he's dying, like, damn, we should just, like, start start shooting, you know, I think. Like, to a certain extent, he at least comes to that moment of, like, wow, I really haven't done shit. Like, to do something would be to, yeah, like, take this gun and go do something with it, you Mm -hmm. know, or whatever. Right, or at the very least, like, actually throwing himself into action, putting himself, like, vomiting onto the (laughs) landscape, right? Like, actually offering something in him towards the cause. And, I mean, there is that moment at the end then when they say what does your death prove as if he is like kind of willfully throwing himself at death's door and he says the triumph of beauty and justice and in a way that's kind of (laughs) that's how i felt about the final shot of escape from la when snake finally lights that cigarette with that you know, little pack of matches that he had, and he does, you know, the Lawrence of Arabia blowing out the match as the final image. And it's like, what does all of this prove, this disaster that is now the world has been struck with because of this insane EMP that's sending us back to the Dark Ages? He's like, well, the triumph of beauty and justice, me, Snake Plissken, that's right. doing what was right, you know? <laughs> couldn't Couldn't put it any better than that. 
That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I love Sue, Andy. Uh, I don't know if you were getting this vibe, but uh, I feel like Electra Glide in Blue stole a little uh, from the, the one of the last shots of this film before Paolo wanders into uh, the sort of like desert landscape that the film ends on. There's a tracking shot down a very long sort of desert road that is like identical to the death of Robert Blake in Electric Light and Blue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about it at the time, but now that you mention that, like, absolutely, you know? And it's one of my, like, favorite, you know, final shots in any movie ever. Like, yeah, it's 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 beautiful. I mean, like, should be pointed out that for all of the, at times, you know, uh, direct cinema and, 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 you know, almost like pseudo-documentary stuff that's in in Trans Earth, there are some like really incredible compositions like in, yeah. in I, the film. I disagree with Roche's assessment of this film as being like ugly, you know, like I think it looks amazing. Yeah, I do too, to an extent. <laughs> I know what he means, yeah. but like that that's maybe, yeah, to, to our listeners, like this film looks incredible in its own way. It's just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it kind of at times like reminded me of like some of Carpenter's like beautiful steady cam work. Like there's a lot of like handheld stuff in there when like with a nice, like big wide angle on it. And like, there's a lot of information, you know, of, of characters like in the center of the frame, you know, flanked by other people or in these like strange spaces that, that seem so deep and, and at times like empty, like this, you know, constant movement, you know, and that's Carpenter's thing too. Like he, (laughs) Carpenter, you know, he says the cliche in the, in the interviews book, he's like, movies move camera movement cutting that's what they're about (laughs) so like for him it's like yeah you move the camera that's what a fucking movie is and ferocious similarly like we are moving right we are flying around in every space we're flying around fucking everywhere moving roving circling the characters looking up looking down i mean he called it falsely baroque i think yeah it's it's brilliantly baroque you know like he's also got tableau work in there too and a lot of direct address which we should directly address the snake plissken shot is a fourth wall break direct address at the end so for carpenter that is a radical act because he's a classical filmmaker. You know, he even talks about it being like, you're not supposed to do that. I'm like, dude, people are doing that for like 70 years by the time, (laughs) you know, you got to it in 1996. But like, that's adorable that you are such an adherent to the old ways, you know? And here's Rosha like having a direct address every five minutes from like a different character spouting a different philosophy, you know? like. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that the visual style adapts to all of the locations too because there are like so many incredible locations whether they're just you know the real areas that people are living in or these lavish estates that feel like they're from a totally different era and then just like bourgeois apartments his roving camera is like very conscious of where it's roving and how it should be framing all of these things that's the thing when the film first started i was like god this thing is just like firing on all cylinders like every cut is like completely in a dialectical conversation with the preceding shot 
and then you know the way all of these spaces are framed and i still felt that way by the end but my brain can only keep up with it so much that by the end you sort of just surrender yourself to it and then kind of like find yourself entranced <laughs> by this earth oh, that yeah. he has depicted you know I, I see what you did there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah i mean uh, you know, this isn't when you first pitched the topic, Andy. This isn't exactly how I envisioned it turning out, and I'm really glad it did. Uh, just the fact that we were able to bring Snake Pliskin into the world of Glaber Rocha and vice versa, um, I think is is pretty delightful. But I guess in thinking about when you were deciding on the topic, and then other depictions of misrepresentation that you've seen on film, um, do you have any particular favorites? that speak to you well actually someone here tonight uh mentioned one that that uh comes to mind uh alex cox's walker which uh is about a a sort of technically an elected official where uh you know ed harris plays the 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 freebooter uh william walker who goes down to nicaragua and 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 sort of you know, for, uh, I think it's Vanderbilt, yeah. uh, helps him take over Nicaragua so that the Vanderbilt corporation can, can run the place. Um, you know, and, and that movie's amazing and, and it's a, a beautiful, beautiful bit of political satire. Um, but I'd say my ultimate has gotta be when I think of misrepresentation, I gotta go, uh, <laughs> To Rufus T. Firefly in Duck Soup, the great Marx Brothers film, <laughs> and uh, Groucho Marx as the the president of Fredonia. I think that is still for me uh, the gold standard of of political satire. Uh, I think it's just such an amazing uh, depiction of of just everything that is worst. <laughs> in the world and uh, uh, uh quite an intelligent film i think people often you know who don't really know a lot about the marx brothers or haven't really watched their films uh you know with a with a keen eye uh sometimes just think it's just nothing but but clown shit but but actually to <laughs> me duck soup is is a is a brilliant film about about politics. Well, you know, they grew up in Chicago, so they know a little bit about uh, being misrepresented politically, you know? <laughs> they would, yeah. Oh, man, if only Glover Rocha could have lived to have make a film about, like, the aldermanic races in Chicago, just people going up a head-to-head. I saw in the news today that Chicago was voted most corrupt city in America for the third year in a row. We got Very it. nice. Three-peat. Not our first one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was my topic this week. Ryan, I believe you're up next. What do you got for us? It certainly is me. So I felt a lot of pressure for for this week because we've got a little bit of a milestone coming up. We are reaching episode 50. And I was really struggling to come up with something that related to the number 50. I was trying to be cute uh-huh. and I was looking back at different anniversaries of like what happened in 1972. Uh, and I ran into a dead end, so I kind of abandoned the thread. So instead I started just reflecting on 50 episodes of The Gauntlet and looking back at those films. And I was thinking about the mixtape that that Marsh made and how Marsh, you had mentioned it, made you nostalgic for those films. And I I felt the same way. So I was thinking, you know, here we're at 50, thinking back, maybe feeling a little bit nostalgic. How about we take a look at some films 
that deal with nostalgia. And I guess part of my challenge for both of you, this doesn't have to be a defining factor, but to find films that deal with nostalgia for something that maybe is outside of your own lived experience. So something that makes you feel nostalgic for something that actually hasn't happened to you, which I think is something really powerful that cinema can do. Um, so yeah, that's the little trip I'd like us to, to go on. Beautiful. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send an email to Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Prendero! Appendero! Dominare esta terra! Botare esta distérica tradições em ordem! Pela força! Pelo amor da força! Pela harmonia universal dos infernos! Chegaremos a uma civilização!